The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 17 I'd Rather Be a Hammer Post Street ends at Market in a crazy three-way intersection with Montgomery, causing cars to well up like water in a dam stream. I was fourth in line at the light when I spotted Todd Nagel in my rearview mirror. He was two cars back in a yellow VW van, decked out in his backward baseball cap and mirrored sunglasses. As a professional tail, he was about as inconspicuous as a pimp at an Amish wedding. When the light turned green, I let the cars in front of me go through the intersection, blocked traffic until the signal turned a tasteful burnt amber, then gunned the motor and barreled across market onto New Montgomery. Horns blared and a truck driver yelled an unscholarly observation about my genealogy, but as the galaxy sailed past the line of taxis waiting at the Palace Hotel, I turned round and saw Nagel nicely snared at the intersection. The computer repair shop was just one block east on 2nd, but instead I took a quick ride on Mission, cruised west to 3rd, and then doubled back to Market. Nagel was nowhere to be seen by the time I came back through the Montgomery intersection, so I kept going to 2nd and buried my car behind a dumpster in a connecting alley. The PC doctor was housed in a small storefront with a bright orange sign that featured a dopey picture of a guy dressed up in a lab coat and stethoscope with a round mirror strapped to his forehead. He was putting a tongue depressor into the floppy drive of a personal computer that had an ice bag on top of the monitor and an unhappy expression on the screen. A woman in a long, dirty coat made of fake fur stood by the entrance, hawking copies of the street sheet, a gritty little journal produced for homeless people. I told her to keep the paper for the next sucker, but dropped a dollar into her cup before going inside. I passed the claim check over to the earnest-looking kid behind the counter, who went to the back of the shop and returned with a laptop computer, placing it just out of reach in front of me. Excuse me, he said. I don't believe you are the same person who dropped the computer off. Did the owner ask you to collect it? I gave the kid an easy smile. Sure, I said. I work for Mr. Teller. Didn't he call you? He said he was going to call and let you know I was coming by. Well, yes, he called, but he didn't say anything about sending someone else. I have the claim check, right? It's not like I stole that out of his pocket. But if you're not comfortable, I'll ask Mr. Teller to come by himself. I don't think he'll be too happy, though. He was counting on using that laptop. Just like he was counting on staying alive, I thought. Another customer came into the store. The kid looked at him and then back at me and then made up his mind. That's okay. If you will just sign the repair invoice so we have a record. I told the kid I'd be happy to sign and forked over the 225 bucks he wanted for the repair. I left Todd Nagel's name on the invoice, tucked the computer under my arm, and went back to my car to see what I could make of it. I unfolded the hinge screen and punched the power button. The operating system booted up, Windows XP, as I was informed in large letters, and eventually the desktop came into view. There were graphic icons for a variety of applications electronic mail, word processing, spreadsheets, overhead presentations, and internet browsing, 
and a corresponding set of data files. After a few minutes of nosing around, it became clear I didn't really know what I was looking for. There were a number of game programs on the computer, but none of them seemed to be chess-related. Even if I did manage to locate the chess program, I wouldn't recognize the source code for it if it did a line dance across the screen. I powered off the computer with the idea of calling Chris Duckworth for a little expert advice. But before that, I decided Mr. Nagel's continued attentions required me to brush up on some of my home repair, do-it-yourselfer skills. I called several hardware stores and a couple of lumber yards before I found what I wanted at a construction equipment rental place in South San Francisco. A gun used for driving nails into masonry and concrete. I put the gun and several of the explosive cartridges used to fire it into a burlap bag along with some three-inch masonry nails and dumped it into my trunk. Stopping briefly at my apartment to pick up the Glock automatic, I drove on to North Beach and parked in a choice spot on Chestnut Street, across from the entrance to the power station. I rounded up a 32-ounce beer in a giant go-cup and a fistful of peanuts from a sports bar on Bay, and then went back to the car and settled in with both guns, nail and bullet loaded and sitting in the front seat next to me. It was pushing six o'clock, and the sky was overcast and growing dark. Across the way, a tiny spot shone on the plaque with the club's name, and a yellow light glowed from the high, industrial-looking windows of the first two stories. When I cracked the window so I could light a cigarette, I heard the elaborate clanging of a cable car bell as the conductor showed off for the tourists waiting at the nearby turnaround. An hour went by with little activity. A cab pulled up to drop off a power station patron, a fat guy with dark curly hair wearing chinos and a turtleneck, and two middle-aged women came out of the club arm in arm, tittering as they walked up the street. At about seven, I saw what I was waiting for. A white van cruised the block towards Mason. There were no parking spaces along Chestnut, so the driver turned left at the corner and drove slowly out of view. I holstered the Glock and gingerly returned the nail gun to the burlap bag, carrying it with me as I double-timed it to the corner. The van was parked about 30 yards up on the right, and I arrived just in time to see Chuck Haystrip step out, slam the door, and check to see if it was locked. He haltingly whistled the old Marty Robbins tune, El Paso, as he ambled my way. I ducked back behind a parked car, and then snuck back to the power station, situating myself in the narrow alley between the old brewery and the adjoining apartment house. I picked up Haystrip's whistling again, and gradually it grew louder. He appeared at the mouth of the alley just as he was struggling through the part of the tune where the cowboy meets Felina at the cantina. I had always thought it was a little too convenient that the girl's name rhymed with cantina, but at least it was better than Dagmar at the fern bar. I said, Howdy, partner! Haystrip turned. I landed a horrific punch that spread his nose like jelly on toast. His head snapped back and blood flowed from both nostrils. Stepping in close, I grabbed two handfuls of his wool blazer and brought my knee up on an express ride to his groin. He gave a strangled cry, lurched forward, toppled to the ground. Now tell me you're happy to see me, I said. Haystrip responded with a moan and heaved a good quart of his dinner onto the sidewalk. You silver-tongued devil, you, but I'd go easy on the menudo. Looks like it doesn't agree. I retrieved the nail gun from the burlap bag then grabbed Haystrip by the collar and dragged him into the alley. Stand up, I said sharply, pulling him by the hair. He rose on wobbly legs, and I shoved him against the brewery wall. I held the gun close to his face, the tip of the masonry nail an inch or so from his ear. 
His eyes got wide and pleading. Think of this as a sort of heavy-duty stapler, I said. And hold still, or I won't be responsible for what gets stapled. I crammed the gun under his armpit, pulling the fabric from his coat and shirt so that it lay sandwiched between the nail and concrete. Squeeze the trigger. The gun jolted with a flat report like a slamming door. A puff of dust blew out and the nail was buried the full three inches. Haystrip whimpered. A dark stain spread from his crotch like the Nazi blitzkrieg shown on the map of Europe. I reloaded and fired three more times, nailing him fast to the wall. I stepped back and glared at Haystrip. His nose had swelled to a full-scale copy of Edison's first light bulb. The lower half of his face was streaked with blood, and his shirt was fouled with vomit. He looked like death on a cracker. Chuck, I said, I really can't begin to repay all the kindness you've shown me, but this is a first attempt. If you want to dissuade me from further efforts, I suggest you answer all the questions I'm about to ask. Comprende? Haystrip looked up at me with unconcealed malice. He gathered saliva in his mouth and spat. The spittle dropped to the ground in front of me. Fuck you, he croaked. I guess we were due for some spit. We've had just about everything else out of you. I walloped him twice in the stomach. His breath blew out and he lost his footing, leaving him thrashing on the wall like an insect pinned in a killing jar. I waited for him to collect himself, then pulled the glock and pressed the barrel to the temple of his hanging head. This one doesn't shoot nails, Chuck. Now why is Nagel still following me around? The cops have issued a warrant for Terry's arrest. At this point, I'm the least of her worries. Haystrip temporized, then sputtered. I don't know anyone named Nagel. Todd Nagel, a rangy-looking guy with a baseball cap, mirrored glasses, and a VW van. You don't know him or recognize that description? No. Then how did you know I would be at the jazz club? Haystrip lifted his head. Dale and I followed you there from your apartment. Dale's a black guy? Yeah. What about Terry's friend Jody? What's her angle? Are you sure she didn't tell you I was at the club? Like I said, Dale and I trailed you there. I don't know anything about a Nagel or a Jody. They must be imaginary friends of yours. Or maybe Jody's the name of your inflatable doll. I grabbed him around the throat and shoved his head against the wall. You're the one who makes his living guarding perverts at Club Shanker here. You know Jody. She's a member or employee or something. Okay, okay, said Haystrip. He reached his hands toward his throat but thought better of it when I dug the gun into his temple with a twisting motion. I know her, barely, just to say hello. As far as I know, she isn't involved in, in any of this at all. You're about as credible as Nixon's press secretary. You know that? Let's see how you do with this one. Where's Terry McCullough? Haystrip shook his head awkwardly. Forget it. I'm not giving her up. I tightened my fingers around his throat, but I knew I didn't have the steel to really put the screws to him. How would you like one of those nails driven through your foot? I bluffed. You know I'm just looking for an excuse to tear you apart. Go ahead, you bastard. Think no one would hear me yell? You're lucky someone hasn't come by already. They'd only offer to lend me a hand. I leaned into him, bringing our faces less than an inch apart. Tell me where she is. She's going to get caught eventually. She's not worth getting maimed for. Big talk, Reardon. You don't have the stomach. You're nothing but a pathetic little man and a pathetic little business. I released my grip on his throat and took a fistful of his thinning hair. I slammed his head back into the brick wall. Again, 
Tell me where she is, I screamed. I stepped back, trembling. Somehow the idea of bluffing was getting lost. Haystrip's head lolled and saliva dribbled from his mouth. Fuck you, he mumbled. I'm not giving her up. I love her. I forced several deep breaths into my lungs. I needed to get out of there before I lost it entirely. That's just great, I said after a moment. A romantic thug. Have you two got your wedding pattern picked out? Something in a lovely black iron, no doubt. I put the Glock back under my arm and gathered up the nail gun and the burlap bag. Haystrip watched me suspiciously, not believing I was finished. I patted him on the cheek, said, That's right. I'm leaving you to your fate, Pally. You're already in more kinds of trouble than I can think of. It's not for nothing that she's got that bug tattoo. I started to walk away, then turned back. And Haystrip, don't ever come near me again. I'll give no more thought to emptying a clip into you than I would to pissing on a urinal cake. I went up the alley and across the street to my car. If I thought I was going to have the last word, I was wrong. Haystrip started yelling obscenities at me as soon as I put the key in the lock. I piled in the galaxy, slammed the door shut, and slipped in a Miles Davis tape. With the volume cranked up, all I heard was Miles' cool trumpet as I oozed down the street. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Thank you.